Hear the word of the Lord from Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offering. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the death, dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised by our justification. This is the word of the Lord. We had a uh, guest preacher at the nine o'clock service and he kept looking over at me and asking how to say propitiation, which is fine, the sermon was otherwise excellent. Lynn here nailed it. Way to go. Every time I look at the text, I'm like, whose idea was it to preach Romans? It was mine. Morning, I don't know if I introduced myself when I preached a few minutes ago, or when I uh, prayed for the children a few minutes ago. My name is Matt Blazer. I'm the pastor here. And we have multiple Presbyterian ministers in the room, which is a little bit intimidating, but less so than when I was in St. Louis and my professors from seminary would sometimes come when I was preaching. That was even worse. Are you a good gift receiver? 
Not are you good at receiving gifts, are you a good gift receiver, like a, a, a gift that made you feel known and cared for. When someone gives you a gift and you are surprised at how much it affected you, do you then respond well? In the Christian faith, that is perhaps the most important spiritual skill available to Christians. Obviously, I'm being metaphorical. But also, obviously, I hope it's perhaps the most important spiritual skill that we develop is a life of constant responding to the good gift of faith and mercy and peace and grace of Jesus Christ. You remember the last time someone gave you something and you knew when they gave it to you that they know you well? God not only knows you well, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than your spouse and your children, your coworkers, even the artificial intelligence that knows so well how to sell us stuff on our computers. God knows you even better and more deeply and profoundly and all those things put together. He knows your past, what needs to be tended to. He knows your needs for today and your future is secure in him. He knows that you need his righteousness to be given to you by the free gift of grace, not by your works, both because your works could never earn it and because on that day when we actually manage to tell the truth all day without being aggressive truth-tellers, which is a different kind of sin, what happens? We feel a little bit boastful, don't we? Romans 2 talks about this. Romans 3 talks about this. Romans 4 talks about this. One of the wonderful gifts of the gospel is it saves us from ourself, which is not only from sin and death, which is where we would end up with left to our own devices, but also from boastfulness when we do get it right and from arrogance. It's woven all throughout chapters 2 and 3 and 4 so that we might see how very beautiful and broad and rich and deep and good are the mercies of God. Liam, I just realized I do not have my iPad. Do your best. <laughs> Normally I scroll through, my, scroll through my own slides using an iPad. And I literally just look down and I'm like, it's not here. So, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Thank you for the offer though. God knows not only who you are in your past and your present and your future, you, he knows how desperately you need his righteousness to be imputed to you by grace and received and then for you to live in the light of that freedom and grace having received the incredible gift of his grace and mercy, which frees us on the one hand from purposelessness. It's our great fear about the world, isn't it? I think the deepest symptom of the fall is our loneliness. But our, but our fear 
is that there isn't much, if any, purpose to this. <laughs> That's my son laughing, by the way. If you wonder why I keep laughing, it's because when it's your kid, you know, it's different, right? Parents, especially if it was somewhat surprising when they were born. In Romans 3 and in Romans 4, Paul is weaving around. He's talking about David. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about how Abraham's promises were given to Abraham, but they are for us also in verses 21 through 26. And he's, as he's weaving around, he's telling us and reminding us that God frees us from our tendency to boast on our best days when we almost kept the law. If we're honest, we didn't keep the law. But on our best days, we would boast, and that's no good and shows us, again, in a different way, our sinful tendencies that we need to be saved from. And on the other hand, our fears that there isn't much, if any, purpose. There is, in fact, incredible purpose woven into his kingdom, receiving the grace and then acting like a follower of Christ. This is the heart of the gospel preached in the New Testament. Martin Luther says this is the heart of the gospel. This is a significant reason that our church exists. Because 500 years ago, really 1,000 years ago, and then especially 7 and 800, but especially 500 for the Reformation, I said especially more times than I should have, adverbs, read this and thought, it's not my work that saves, it's God's. That is freeing. That's light and life not the tyranny I actually experience. And so with open hands, we receive his righteousness, verse 22. We receive his justification, verse 24. We receive redemption, verse 24. We receive propitiation, which is covering. Your sin is covered. It is taken care of. We receive that with open hands, like Abraham Paul's using Abraham for a whole bunch of reasons, but especially because his story is beautiful. By the way, he did waver all the time, but his faith didn't waver. When Paul talks about how he didn't waver, he's not saying Abraham didn't make some bad choices. If you read Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, which are the primary parts, which are the primary texts that tell us about the covenant that God made with Abraham, you'll also see some very bad decisions. And what does that mean? Abraham was a human, like you and me. Why was he counted as righteous? Because God's pursuing love preceded any decision that he made. Which is such great news, that before we thought about it, God's grace came and rescued us. Before we acted about it, acted upon that, God came and saved us. Before we decided to pray or not, or sing or not, or act like a Christian, God's love came before us. And then we respond. Why does he tell us this? Because he wants us to know, among other things, how deeply he loves us. I've been quoting Hebrews 7 because I'm reading a book about the character of Jesus. I have plenty to cover in Romans, but in Hebrews 7, describes Jesus as loving us to the uttermost. That's Hebrews 7.25. Perhaps the flip side of that coin is Romans 3.23. How desperately we needed his love to love us to the uttermost because all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. The reason that he offers us his righteousness, justification, redemption, and propitiation is not first and foremost because of our great need. This is important. It's first and foremost because that's who he is. As an overflow of the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, he comes after us. And yes, we're very, 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 very needy people. We have uttermost need. But the first reason that he pursues us is because of who he is. And I love how comfortable Paul is with the poetry of Psalm 32 in in chapter 4 when he quotes David and speaks about David. He doesn't mind poetry. Some of us are more comfortable with mundane language or scientific language and would even call Romans the scientific language of the scriptures. It's theologically precise as about any book, and yet that book needs poetry because it is such good news that we're a forgiven people. The Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament, and they're songs that were sung corporately and individually. They're much more honest with God than we are. They're poetic and poetic prose. They use acrostics and parallelism and all the things you learned about in junior high and don't remember anymore, and that's fine. Because the good news is technical. His righteousness is imputed. Jesus is the justification for your sin. We receive redemption by his work and not our own. He is the propitiation for our sin. And it's such good news that we respond in song. Verse 7 from chapter 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And neither Abraham nor David knew most of what you and I know about Jesus, but they knew about the steadfast love of God and it was counted to them as righteousness because he had gone before their minds and hearts and pursued them in love as he did with you. And this is the kind of text that's so important to understand and it applies itself if you will but let it. When you go to your place of business, or engage retirement, which is like work, to understand how to do retirement well, especially as a follower of Jesus. I understand that. Do you see how the gospel frees you from arrogance on the one side and from thinking that there's no purpose to it on the other in your place of work? Then you don't have to find your identity in what you do. Neither then do you have to succumb to the lie that your work doesn't matter. Instead, you get to enjoy your role in the kingdom because your sin is atoned for. You're given work in him to do. I'm saying that because Paul is describing Abraham and to a lesser extent David's decisions that they made after God pursued them in love. And I'm accounting that to you as your role in the world that is neither purposeless nor are we supposed to find our identity in it. We are justified by faith like Abraham. And this is where the scriptures are beautiful and historic. And I hope that your imagination grapples with them 
Do you remember when God told Abraham to count the stars? Do you know that story? And he said, go ahead, Liam, if you have that image. And he said to him, your followers will be this numerous. Parents, this is your quarterly reminder, actually all of you, this is your quarterly reminder that the best book I've ever seen on the Old Testament in light of Jesus is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. I'm 44, I have a Master's of Divinity and an undergrad in Religious Studies and in English. I kind of mailed that one in, so I don't talk about it as much. I've never seen a book as clear and as compelling as the Jesus Storybook Bible. And if you don't like pictures like this, I think that's silly of you, but there's a version without the pictures. If you want the version without the pictures, you can get it. It's the best book I've ever seen on the Old Testament in light of Jesus. It doesn't say, she doesn't say everything, but what she says is so clear. And she goes through the story of Abraham, and here's what we're supposed to be gripped by. And Paul would just expect you to understand this. I'm not sure all of you remember Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 as well as Paul would expect you to, because I'm not sure that I remember it as well as he expects me to, so I reread it this week. You're one of those stars if you call Jesus Lord. You're part of the fulfillment of that promise. You're wrapped into a thousands-of-year-old story of God's pursuing love. Because he delights in you as an overflow of who he is and because of how much we desperately need it. We're justified by faith like Abraham, whose faith rested on grace. In verse 16, chapter 4, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, again, is when God promises these things to Abraham and the promises grow in scope and imagination if you read them in sequence. And they're unconditional. We know that because God promises, then he commands Abraham. That's always how it works. God comes and pursues us, then describes to us how to live in light of his love. The covenants of God know us better than we know ourselves because they know that we would break them, but God will keep them. They rest on the free gift because that's the only lasting power, that's the only good motivation for love of God and neighbor is because we were loved, not to incur his favor, not to manipulate or do community poorly, which is what we would do left to our own devices, Romans 1. We're naturally abusive to one another, idolatrous towards God, and shallow and harmful in community. But God pursues us in love. And do you see how this applies, friends? Every once in a while, I'll see, and it's this, it's this, I don't even know who wrote this, okay? This is a secondhand reference, but my wife was in the nursery of our house laughing 
because someone had written about their spouse that they were their everything. And she's laughing because she knows that if she's my everything, this is going to not be good. We both struggle with resentment. We sometimes are silent with one another when we should use words. Sometimes, this is going to shock you, we correct one another when one of us shares a story from the past. I know that's just us. None of you would ever do that with your spouse. Isn't it amazing how the small stuff is so much more irritating than the big stuff? Like, if it's a correction about one of our medical issues from the past, like, we're like, oh, yeah. But if it's, like, small, yeah, because we're human. In light of Romans 3 and Romans 4, I'm freed from the temptation to believe she's my everything, which would end up with us being toast and perhaps divorced. Actually, my faith can be in Jesus, not in myself or in her. And then I'm freed to love her. And the energy gets taken out of my temptation to resentment. My tendency to use silence in a weaponizing fashion shrinks. It doesn't just go away. Sometimes it does in the moment. God, God is sometimes that good. Usually it involves an apology and repentance me learning how to not do that again because it's not loving. In the moment, it's a great grift. Afterwards, we're more often repentant people. Talking about Abraham, Paul says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He wavered a lot in his action, but not in his faith, like us. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that good news? Do you realize what that means? It means these old, wise, true words were not written to us, but were written for us. Both the 3,000-year-old ones and the 2,000-year-old ones. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I ask you again, are you a good gift receiver? I have my opinions about bad gifts. That's not what we're talking about this Sunday. Are you a good gift receiver? I'm not a huge fan of Les Mis, the novel. Has anyone read the unabridged version? I mean, 50 pages on the sewer systems of Paris. Not sure that's necessary. 50 pages just setting up Waterloo. Not positive is necessary, but I read the whole thing. And do you remember when Jean Valjean is treated so poorly in town to town to town, and he's finally treated so well by the bishop, and he can't handle it, Because oftentimes humans can't handle kindness. We're much more used to harm and a lack of love. And he can't sleep. And he gets up and he steals all the silver. And he gets caught. And when he's brought back to the house, what does the bishop do? He says, you forgot the candlesticks. Here's a candlestick in my office. The man who was best man in my wedding gave it to me to remind me of grace. It's not 
the only good illustration, but it's a really good one. And that is how loving towards us God is. That is how profoundly, and, and if you've read or, or perhaps listened to the musical or watched it, musicals incredible. I have nothing bad to say about the musical. Whew. And now I'm not going to sing any of it because that would really ruin the moment. Two four six zero one. That was his number as a prisoner. God is that kind and generous to us, friends. He connects it to history keeping our minds from wondering if this is just a metaphor. Of course not. It's true. Reminding us of the resurrection of Jesus, which is essential to the power of our faith and to our hope. Justified by faith, like Abraham, whose faith rested on grace and hope. Listen again to verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What promise of his do you doubt? You have to know his promises to doubt them. And by the way, that means your faith is thoughtful and engaged and alive. I hope that you have doubts and that you engage them. Do you doubt that he's good? Do you doubt that faith is received and not earned? Do you doubt that he will in fact mature you? grow you up in faith? Do you doubt that he will and can heal your past? See, hope is not anticipation in the biblical sense. Hope is confidence. Go back with me if you have your Bible open or your, on your screen to verses 25, 26, and 27 of chapter 3. And I'm going to say something kind of nerdy. I'm going to be brief, but I think it's essential. Watch the verb tenses. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Some of you doubt Jesus in your past. His ability, willingness to actually heal. Some of you are not confident today that you've received his righteousness, that his justification covers you, and then that you receive redemption and propitiation, verses 22, 24, 24, and 25 from chapter 3. And that that's actually enough. You doubt that that's enough for you to do today. And that's all right. If you do, that means your faith is thoughtful and alive. And we present that to the Lord and say help. And some of you... Do not sense that your hope is secure. You're overly concerned about your kids. Of course, you're supposed to be concerned about your kids. But you're overly concerned. You're overly concerned about health. Of course, you're supposed to be concerned about your health. Overly concerned about things in your future. 
Romans 3 and 4 are about all that we receive because of the work of Christ mediated to the Holy Spirit before we even knew it. Then we have an opportunity to respond in faith and to receive from him not only salvation, but healing, confidence in today, and the confidence that our future is secure in him. Chapter 4, verse 21 again, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's an indirect answer because Paul's making a sustained theological argument and points an indirect answer to our questions, our questions of our past and our present and our future. But he is that good, friends, to save us, to heal us, to be present with us right now and for the day, and to give us the comfort and assurance of his Holy Spirit, which is in our future in him. And if you're considering the claims of Christ, I'm so glad you're here. This is a long, theological, rich book. And it will actually address your questions. Because it's true. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for, in love, pursuing Abraham to yourself. And then in love pursuing David to yourself and calling him to write the poetry that he wrote. And then in love pursuing Paul to yourself, among other reasons, so that he could write such encouraging words to us about your steadfast love that ever pursues us, first to you and then to grow us up. For the women and men that are considering faith in you, Jesus, would you show them that it is life? For those of us that need to remember all of these promises, would you draw them to mind not only this morning, but throughout the week? Amen.